We're basically taking the energy that is coming from the universe and that gets transformed into physical matter. And we then take that energy and we create vision from it. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Crammed on the south-facing balcony of an apartment in Amsterdam are birch trees and grasses and papyrus plants and flowers. You might mistake it for a snapshot of a botanical garden. But this is a place that actually provides a soothing and tranquil environment, a moment of repose and quietude in the busy life of my next guest. When living in Portland, Oregon, he loved planting and growing things so much that he'd set up tripods with lights to work by night. He believes that divinity comes through creation. Inspiration, thought, word, action, and creation. So it should come as no surprise that the starting point at the natural environment is just one of his many sources of inspiration for the work he does leading a design and branding agency, creating innovative customer experience solutions for clients like McDonald's and Nike, Intercontinental Hotel Group, L'Occitane, the Tate Modern, and Bloomingdale's in Dubai. While appreciating the power that comes from keenly observing natural environments, that would only be part of the story as he equally puts considerable brain power into focusing on technology and its relationship to an emerging guest and their interest in engaging in brand environments. Prior to founding UXUS, U-X-U-S, an acronym for U times Us, George Gottel was the creative director of Apparel at Nike and the global creative director at Mandarina Duck. He's a graduate of Parsons School of Design, winning the Silver Thimble Award for Design Excellence. He's spoken at various prestigious locations, including Harvard's sponsored DMI conferences in New York, the Microsoft-sponsored DMI conference in Helsinki, Amsterdam's Fashion Institute, and the Willem de Kooning Academy. We thought we might call this episode Plants and Politics with George, but that might not have allowed us to talk about the interesting ideas he has on the evolution of brand engagement, storytelling, and the art of the Renaissance, along with the technology influence on an emerging cohort of new shoppers. So if previous discussions or any indication of what we're likely going to hear in this one, I would say that we're probably going to talk about philosophy, architecture, design, storytelling, and life and death, and everything possibly in between. With that, I'd like to welcome George Gottel. Well, thank you, David. That's quite an introduction. Thank you very much. Part one, I want to talk about inspiration and nature. And I know you go to a lot of these interviews and people say, so where do you find your inspiration? You know, what are the things that drive you forward? And I really do love this idea that you said about uh, divinity comes through creation and uh, that um, inspiration, thought, word, action and creation are just part of a trajectory. Have you turned to nature to find inspiration or is it just sort of a, a green thumb fancy that you have? Well, I, I, I love growing things. So I, you know, growing things is part of the process of making things, right? And so for me, um, yeah, I mean, divinity is creation because even the basis of the universe is, you know, about the the galaxies are and suns and, solar systems are born and created. So, I mean, the, the basis of everything is, is about bringing things to life, literally. So for me, creating is what sets us apart from 
uh, a lot of the other creatures on the planet, our ability to imagine and to create from the imagination is is quite remarkable. And I think, um, you know, if you want to talk about God or you want to talk about divinity, it's a, a, a higher level of existence. It's a type of, you know, the ability to make something from a thought is pretty astounding. And everything that we touch, including the fact that we're being recorded right now, came from someone's imagination at one point or another. So everything that surrounds us has been created um, from an abstract bunch of cells banging together with some electrons and all of a sudden, boom, we have a car, a microphone, a computer, a cell phone, you know. Did your thinking about how the divine comes into the creative things around us, the excellence that we are able to achieve through through what we do together individually, et cetera, did that come after you had a life-threatening event like a heart attack or was it always there? Yeah, I, it was always there. I mean, I there was something when I was very young, um, I can't remember exactly my age, but very young, like four or five years old. I remember sitting on the lawn in my backyard where my, in my parents' house and looking at the grass and understanding that the grass was alive, that it was a living organism underneath me that was alive. And I don't know what it was. It just kind of, it was this incredible revelation that I had about like everything around me, you know, that this like the trees, the birds, the air, everything has this incredible force to it. And that force is what makes things. And that being able to control that force through yourself allows you to be a creator and make things for hopefully the good, because you can also make things that are destructive. I have this, this idea that the things we do as creative people, the things we make, the paintings, the drawings, those things, whether it's making a pot from a lump of clay, you really are imbuing your life force into yes. the thing. It becomes literally a physical manifestation of your life energy because yes. it takes energy to move the lump of clay into a pot. And that yes. energy only comes from me. Yes. Uh, so I add literally part of my life energy into the making of the thing. And so those things that we create around us then are part of us. I think that's why it's difficult to put those things out there as a creative, because they're truly who I am at a very deep level beyond, yeah. beyond anything else. They are my life energy put. So to have that criticized, to have that not accepted, that's very tough. You know, yeah. that's very tough. And it, that can be a very scary and a daunting thing to sort of fully expose yourself as a true representation of who I am to the public yes. and, and hope that they accept it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I am fully a believer in that the things that we put our life energy into are who we are. And I think that's part of the idea of leaving a legacy. Yeah. Well, I think that's a type of immortality. You know, that's mm -hmm. what we're all striving for. We don't want to die. That's the thing. You know, subconsciously, there's this underlying fear of death in everything we do. You yeah. know, and I think that that was, you know, in a way, that's also you, by putting your art out there, what you're afraid of is the opinion 
that you're not good enough, right? So in a way, it's the God of opinion that is making you create this fear because the reality is it doesn't really matter who you are as an individual and the work you produce and what someone says about it is actually irrelevant because as long as it comes from your integrity, what you produce is perfect, right? So regardless of what anyone else thinks about it. I have this fascination with ontological design. Um, meaning that the things that we create in turn make us, our experiences and the way that we have them are in fact a way that we are remade every day. And I find that sort of like the divine in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, it is the sense that the, there is a remaking or making of who we are and not that we are gods, but um, that in the making or remaking of who we are, there is a sort of a sense of divinity or transcendence to that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't, I, what I'm talking about is not necessarily religion because it's Correct. not about doctrine. It's more about the, the life force that moves through everything. And I think, you know, sometimes living in really dense urban centers, we forget about it. And it's actually surrounding us all the time, even in the machines that we make. Um, our ability to produce uh, something from an idea that doesn't, I mean, think about an idea. Can you hold on to it? Can you see it? No, you can't. It's it's completely, you know, ethereal. And we somehow can take that something inside of our mind through action and make something physical in the universe. And that's pretty remarkable. Well, that's one of the things that defines us, right? I think as human yeah. beings, that we are able to make things that also make other things that remake us. Birds make nests, but they Correct. don't have nests that make other nests or nests that make machinery. I think that's one of our unique qualities as humans, which is a differentiating factor of us being on the top of the sort of um, evolutionary ladder. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, if you want to look at top or bottom, <laughs> I don't uh, look at it as top or bottom, but it, it, it is what separates us from other living things right now. You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe dolphins will become incredibly smart and maybe they make something that we haven't seen before. But, you know, in, in terms of what defines us, creativity and art seems to be something that really sets us apart. I think you're right about that. I want to go back to this thing you just said, this life force. There is a very distinct difference uh, about life force that we are all living through today mm -hmm. um, in, in, res in response to this COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. you're, we're each talking from our homes. Um, nice beams on the ceiling, by the way. I'm curious oh, about you. what that, yeah. that, that loft looks like. It's uh, a, a loft from 1763. So oh. my home is, yeah, it's all built up old warehouse, actually. Fantastic. And so there is a very different and palpable change in this this life force, right? Yeah, it's creating a, a very different zeitgeist, a very different uh, uh, feeling about who we are as as societies or distinct or together. Yeah. Um, and and there's a lot of noise out there uh, yeah. about what's happening in yeah. that zeitgeist in that life force. Yeah. Um, tell me some of your thinking about about this idea about where we're going. I think it's a really interesting thing that another life force, this microbe that is invisible to a certain extent, yet it completely has transformed our world. And I think when you think about creation, it's actually a very similar. So creation and destruction are the flip coin of the same thing. So when you're looking at something like COVID that potentially can kill millions of people, 
um, at the same time, it's also transforming our lives or forcing us to look at life in a very different way. Um, and also reinforcing our vulnerability that we're still beings of nature, that we're still part of a planet. And if the planet, for whatever reason, has decided that there's too many of us or has, in this case, created a, a virus that has come down from other creatures and have gotten into our uh, kind of ecosphere, um, you know, it's wreaking havoc. And we're, we're actually quite vulnerable, even with all of our technology. That's the thing that's really astounding is that, you know, I think human beings think they're quite invincible, but here's this little invisible thing that literally could wipe us out. The challenge, of course, I think is when you talk about our own ecosystem is that it's so much built on our ability to connect in embodied relationships, in, in face-to-face -face discussions. This is a face-to-face -face discussion via video interview, yeah. uh, but a very different world than the one that we actually need to have, I think, to thrive in, that the social change is completely being changed, right? Yes. Because we're, we're doing that. Um, what do you see as some of the sort of positive and maybe some of the negative impacts of how this moment is changing what we do from just interpersonally? And then we can go to what you think its impact is on brand engagements. Yeah, well, I mean, I think energy is energy, you know. Um, I, I do think that physical contact is very important, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way to have contact. Um, you know, right now we're communicating through energy, right? It's being, it's being transformed into electricity, into signals, and I can see you and I can talk to you and you're recording our conversation because of the vibrations of that energy, right? So whether we're physically present in front of each other communicating that energy or whether it's going through this electronic system that is artificial in terms of that it's synthesized by human beings, um, it's still a valuable connection. And I think what it's doing is it's training us to behave in different ways. So the COVID, whether you look at it as a positive or negative thing, is training our society to behave in ways that it hasn't behaved before. And generally, change is very uncomfortable. So usually things that, that, that require you to step out of what you're familiar with generally creates fear, anxiety, all kinds of things that we view as negative if you don't embrace them. You know, so if you already are conscious of the fact that, you know, things are going to change and you have to accept whatever comes down the turnpike and you hopefully have enough, um, you know, self-confidence that you know that you'd be able to cope with whatever change is coming from. Because in the end, the only thing that can happen is mortality, right? I mean, that's the end game, right? So it's the end game for everybody. So what it is, it's a fear of death always. So mm -hmm. the transformation and change is always about finality. Right. And that's what we're ultimately afraid of is ending our consciousness. Um, and we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know, you know, if there's life eternal. We don't know if that's it. We don't know, you know. And so that fear of the unknown drives a lot of, of action in terms of human behavior. In the case of COVID, it brings to the surface the most primal fear we have, which is mortality. And because of that, that little virus has basically transformed the global society and at this point bringing all of our systems to the edge um, because of fear of death. 
Because the reality is that we embrace death and we accept it for what it is. Maybe we wouldn't have changed anything and we would have allowed a lot of people to die. Because, I mean, you, you know, right now, everything that we're doing is to kind of circumvent and hold back unnecessary death. But the reality is that we are all heading in that direction anyways. I mean, my own personal experience is I did have a heart attack and my heart stopped. So I did die. So it's, it's this fear of finality that drives the changes that we're going through at the moment. And mm-hmm. the, the, the anxiety and the, the sense of loss that comes from losing either someone who's close to you or whatever it might, you know, whatever it might be in terms of ending. And um, it's, you know, it's very powerful because in the end, it's just a bacteria. In the end, there's, there's been many plagues in the past. But this one in particular has come at a time when we can communicate to each other very easily. We can organize ourselves. And that's what's happening in the world. And some people accept it and some people don't. I mean, there's countries out there that are doing very little and the death rate is very high. There's other countries that have done a lot and the death rate is very low. In the end, it all will be in the same place. In the end, those group of people that have life, that whose life has been extended will also be dead eventually as well, but maybe through more natural causes or something else. We just don't perceive it that way. So how does that fear um, get transposed into the remaking of, of experiences when people are, let's say pre-COVID, uh, people didn't fear going out shopping. They didn't fear no. going to the hotel. They didn't fear, the fear yeah. wasn't really part of it. I mean, maybe, yeah, sure. Maybe there was fear on the flight, you know, because people have an anxiety about flying, yeah. but there wasn't this palpable sense of fear of this invisible path- pathogen that, that makes going out and doing those things that we used to do before dangerous. Can what we do as designers mitigate that fear? Um, I think the kind of fear that we're talking about is quite primal. And it, it really hits the kind of survival instinct in being human being. I think it's very difficult to mitigate that fear unless you can reassure whoever is, you know, being exposed to this kind of situation that whatever you've designed will protect them. The only real protection, obviously, would be some kind of vaccine that would combat the virus directly on its own terms. We can certainly design systems to lower the chances of catching something. And I think that's what we're looking at today is basically a, a whole system to lower the, the chance of, of contact or, you know, catching this, this virus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in where I visited over the weekend, you know, stores had paths that you had to walk in order and you can only walk in one direction so that the, you know, with the air that you're breathing out doesn't contaminate the person next to you. And, you know, all those things, you know, wearing a mask on the train and all those things to help lower the chances of, of infection. Um, it won't wipe away the infection. It doesn't change your resistance to it. And eventually a vaccine will, and then maybe people will feel more secure. Besides the obvious where you you're at home, What's the relevance of all of this with respect to what we do? Yeah, I think what it's done is it's retrained society to behave in a different way. I think that there's a lot of people who were never like, I mean, for example, the whole uh, working remotely situation. There was a lot of companies that were very much against that and that didn't really allow employees to work remotely. Now, all of a sudden, there's companies that are saying, you know, you don't even have to come back to the office anymore. You know, so that's a huge transformation. Um 
in terms of the, the amount of flexibility that an employer will give an employee. Also, the ability of employers to recruit and hire people that would normally not be able to work for them because they aren't they don't live near or they would they would have to import them and potentially the employee doesn't want to move to wherever it is the company's is headquartered. Now I think companies are more open to hiring people anywhere in the world um, that can work remotely, for example. So that really has changed, you know, the idea of hygiene. And things that we took for granted before in terms of spreading uh, potential diseases like the world of beauty, for example, sampling, everybody was, you know, sometimes the hygiene in those stores was not the greatest. Now I think people are hyper aware of them. You know, um, same thing in restaurants. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that has carried over from the 19th century, like tablecloths and salt and pepper on the table. And all those things, you know, are now being removed because of the potential risk of being infected. At the same time, those are things that are also very nice to have. I mean, a beautiful white crisp tablecloth in a restaurant makes it feel very, makes your dining experience feel very elevated, or at least it does for me being an older guy. Maybe in the future for a younger consumer, the tablecloth is irrelevant. I don't know, you know, but those are all things that are being accelerated by COVID. The fact that we're more digitized than ever, the fact that we're communicating uh, with people like we are right now, David. I mean, the fact that we're talking through all these virtual channels and connecting with people virtually is a very different way than we've had in, in communicated in the past. And relationships that happen on a virtual level, like, you know, I have some dear friends who pre-COVID, I would maybe talk to, you know, once or twice a year. Now I'm practically talking to them every other day and, you know, through these virtual channels. Um, so it's a very different way in terms of how we conduct ourselves and how we organize our society when you start putting electronic ways of communicating between, you know, individuals. All of a sudden, there's a whole different set of, of rules that can happen, or there, let's put it as a whole different set of possibilities, because you can also augment that information, right? You can change sure. it, you can transform it, you can make it more imaginative. I don't know, there's a lot of, you know, in the future, who knows how people will communicate with these digital devices. Maybe everything will be enhanced somehow. You know, we're, we're beginning to see it, you know, with Zoom and adding different backgrounds. Maybe, you know, people will transform their faces. Maybe they'll have avatars that they talk through rather than themselves. I don't know. You know, it's like that right now we're in the beginning of the 21st century as far as I'm concerned. This does bring up the idea as a transition into how we're communicating the power of the things that we do in those communication cycles. Um, uh, the big story of the day, of course, is COVID, how it's changing the world, the politics that's surrounding it, and, and the uh, tragedy of death and those kinds of things. Um, but I do like the idea that there, there is a, a transition happening with the use of digital media to tell stories. And you're a master yeah. storyteller. This is what you do. So um, you had mentioned in a previous conversation that you think that there's a lot of quantity of yeah. story, but not a lot of depth in the story. Yeah, I think the way we tell stories are, is very different now. Um, I think that people digest information very quickly and in, in smaller bites than they have in the past. I think our attention span, because of the kind of busy lives that a lot of people have, is much shorter. Uh, also, people are more impatient and they want more of an immediate kind of gratification. Um, you know, I think that's just the way our society has been trained. 
buy now, 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 consume now, 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 everything you want now, 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 you know? So when you're telling a story, you know, I think there's a whole generation out there that expects stories to be a lot more digestible more quickly. Um, they, they get the payoff faster. Um, also more on their own terms. You know, I think there's this whole revolution that we're just beginning to see happen where brands are going to be moving into the realm of entertainment. And that's not necessarily new because we've always had brand placement in movies and things like that. But what will be new is the ability to purchase directly from those those narratives. And you're already beginning to see that happen with some very kind of forward-thinking brands. The most basic way, for example, would be there's a brand that we're working with from the L'Oreal group um, that uses Netflix to inspire their collections. And so they take on a series, like in this case, it was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, uh, and they created entire packages and collections and that the characters on the television were wearing the products that they produce. So they were directly, you know, that's a product placement type of situation. But also the products themselves were influenced by the program. So you could buy this book of spells that was basically a whole palette of, of cosmetic colors that you could apply to your face, for example, versus just taking the product and placing it in the story. The next level is something that Amazon is doing, and there's a program called Making the Cut, uh, which is about a competition of fashion designers designing to specific challenges. So there'd be a challenge every week. Let's say there's 12 designers and uh, there's a challenge every week, and they finally come down to the last two designers, and then there's a winner. But the thing that's so different about this program is that the designers that design the products and the winning product goes immediately onto Amazon. So while you're watching the program, at the end of the program, if you were opening Amazon and you go to the section of making the cut, there is the product that just won the, the show and you can buy it. And the winner of this particular um, contest gets their entire collection placed on Amazon. So they, they design a, you know, full seasonal collection at the end of the program. There's two designers competing with each other and the winning collection gets on Amazon. And that's a very interesting premise because that is no longer like a QVC kind of experience where they hold up a product and say there's only 50 left, you know, and as, you know, it, it gets down to the last two, they discount it some more. And then it's basically a transactional experience. So this is basically just normal shopping, kind mm -hmm. of almost like an auction. What this show is doing with Amazon is that the narrative is actually producing the product. So the storyline is what creates the end result. And what people are buying, I mean, address is address is address, right? But what people are buying is the experience they've just seen. And that product now becomes a souvenir of that experience. So what's happened in China, the Chinese are incredibly advanced with digital purchasing, is that they now have reality TV shows where you can buy everything that's in the show. Anything that the characters so these so you think about like you know uh, Big Brother and how they put people in a in a house and and then there was all this interaction it was like you know uh, reality TV quote unquote sort of reality but yeah reality TV they're doing this now in China where they have these kind of big Big Brother like shows these people are in these very aspirational homes wearing products using products in the spaces 
every single thing you see in the show is for purchase. So all of a sudden, what you're doing is you're no longer advertising through these kind of contrived artificial moments. You're advertising through narrative. You're mm -hmm. advertising and creating desire through the storyline of whatever program is being produced. So in this case, these are, quote unquote, real people experiencing these filmed moments, whatever that might be. Um, obviously, some of it is scripted. I mean, the Kardashian program, for example, there's no way it's reality, right? I mean, there's like 12 cameras in a room and they say, oh, yeah, it's happening spontaneously. We know that's not true, nor is it any different for this Chinese program. The difference is that every single thing they touch is for sale. So, and they have a, a new type of software that you can open your mobile device while the program is running on a monitor. And you can actually, just like on Instagram, touch on the things that you see on the screen and it will open the link to where you can purchase it. So that's really transformative. That was something that we've never, ever done ever in the history of humanity. This is an interesting um, idea because in my previous work uh, with Marriott and, and developing um, brand experiences and, and rethinking public spaces, I've always thought, hey, I love this brand X, whatever the of the multiple you know hotel brands that I happen to enjoy. I love the look and feel. Someone's done a really good job at designing this entire roomscape. Gosh, I would love to have this hotel room be my bedroom. Why can't I come into that room and say, yeah, I want the bed, the headboard, the lights, the artwork, the carpet, and get the whole suite done? Why can't I walk through the lobby of a public space and walk up with my phone and go, love the chair, love the plant, <laughs> love the wall yeah, covering, exactly. love the bookshelf. Then I think what we have, you talked about this idea of transformation. The transformation to the hospitality experience merging with a retail experience is something that the hospitality space haven't really considered, but on the retail side, they have. And so you have the Shinola Hotel, the Equinox Hotel, yeah. Taco Bell even had a pop-up hotel yeah. where they're getting it, that to live in, to live literally overnight or for two weeks in, in the context of that brand story that's so well created yes. is very compelling for guests. Yes. I think when you say brand story, the future is literally mm -hmm. a brand narrative and a, a scripted moment that has a plot and a storyline. And everywhere along that storyline, there's opportunities to consume various products. It's so Machiavellian, uh, but I don't think it is. I think it's actually a natural extension of the way we shop and consider, you know, the the sort of the the, the consumer society that we grow up in. There's a change here, though, that I think takes it to the next level. It makes it slightly more interesting, which is there's one thing to create the brand narrative, the storyline that describes the brand products, goods, services, whatever, do that in a corporate headquarters someplace. There's this other side, which is the world that my um, sons who are 18 and 21 live in, which is that they are continually in a process of story making every day because of the, what they do with their digital devices and how they mm -hmm. create. And I have said this multiple times. It seems to be the thing I'm always pushing on, but their facility with creating those stories naturally extends into their willingness to do the same thing, I think, when they're working in brand engagement so that they aren't simple observers or consumers of that story created elsewhere, but they really want to be involved in the making of that narrative because if yeah. they do, it's more relevant to them yeah. because they're, they're in the story. 
Yeah, I think I couldn't wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think that will be the logical conclusion of where we go in terms of buying habits. Because I think, you know, virtual and physical for especially the generation that you're talking about is completely fluid. And I think that fluidity is being expressed now through these programs that are creating product through these virtual stories, you know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, making the cut is a made up exercise, but yet in the end, it produces a real object that you can purchase. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's creating, and I think, you know, it, it's not new in the sense that there's always been product placements in films and things like that. What's new here is that the story actually generates the product. So it's like the stylist, the set decorator, all of them, they're basically becoming the merchandiser, you know, of what would normally be a curated store, right? So stores have a point of view. Well, the point of view now, instead of coming from a buyer who's an individual who buys the point of view of whatever multi-brand shop, now they're the set decorator, the costume designer is producing the products. How does a brand keep up with that when old world paradigm, they would say, here's a product, it's going to launch. This is what we're having for spring. We're talking about fashion, right? This is what we're having yeah. for spring. This is what we have for fall. This is what we have for holiday. Okay. But that is not the world I think that we're, we're moving towards no. where set platforms or set product launches based on season or holidays yeah. or whatever. Um, that's completely fluid now. How does yeah. a brand keep up with that? Well, I think they, they need to view selling products in a very different light. They need to view selling products more as an immediate activity. So, you know, I mean, the antiquated idea from the 19th century that you buy your fall products in the spring and you buy your, you know, spring products in the fall is ridiculous. Nobody wants to wait. Uh, people want to buy what they see now. They don't want to wait six months to wear it. Um, so I think that, you know, this kind of formalized life that we've had in the past is disappearing. And I think, again, COVID is accelerating that because it's forcing everyone to live in this very digitized world where desire can be, you know, fulfilled very quickly, instantly. You know, if you want something, you just click and get it, right? If you swipe to the left, swipe to the right. So that kind of mentality um, is creating this kind of very real need to be able to address the consumer in a very immediate way. Um, and brands need to start thinking about their products as something that's going to be dropped. So rather than also this idea of a collection, you know, versus items. And I think, you know, nobody wants to buy, well, sometimes they do want to buy an entire and we're, again, here we're talking about fashion, right? So like, I think in fashion now doesn't exist in the sense that everybody wears the same thing. Everybody looks the same way. It's just like in the past, you know, when I grew up, everybody had a certain type of look. Everybody looked a certain kind of way. And also what was appropriate for age groups and all those things um, had a big influence on how you purchased. Nowadays, 
individual style is what drives the purchase of fashion. It's not about some designer saying everybody should be in leopard prints. You know, a man can wear a leopard print jacket as easily as a woman can today. You know, and this idea of, you know, the definitions of gender, the definitions of age appropriateness, the, it's all about personal style and how you present yourself. And I think that goes back to the conversation we just had about your sons. You know, it is about producing a story. And basically, that story is about a personal brand. We are all now brands, so to speak. And how you want to present yourself to the world and how you want to look um, is very much all that matters. And it's not about fitting into a certain type of box. So does this mean that brands are simply or will become aggregators for the brand of me? Yes. Or, or is there a definition around this is brand X, Y, Z, and I buy into those brands? Yes, both. I think, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's either, either and. Either and. It's, it's, that's the thing that's happening. It's fluidity. That's the thing that's super important. It depends on how you feel at that moment. You know, it's, it, we have access to so much. And consumption now is driven completely by desire. It's not driven by need. You know, I don't need another shirt in my wardrobe. I've got a million of them. I want another shirt or I want a particular shirt at that moment when I purchased it. So I think consumers, you know, are driven so much by spontaneous desire versus actual need or want. They want, not need. We have talked before about this idea of the pace of change. And I think one of the key components of that is exactly what you're saying. This fluidity, this ephemeral nature of experience. I think I said in the last time that we spoke that uh, for my sons, brands simply move through their life and yeah. they stop for a short period of time and they go on and they're perfectly yeah. cool with that. Yeah. We talked about the work of Leonardo and, and the Renaissance, right? Yeah. And, and that back in the day, um, things were meant to last forever. You had, and, and oh, by the way, these artists maybe did a hundred things in their life. Whereas now you say, you yeah. know, you can do a hundred things in a day or a yeah. hundred things in the morning. This is yeah. a very different sort of paradigm shift yeah. uh, for the, the creating of ex experiences because, because it is exactly that. It's a fluid and ephemeral and not appreciating the monuments anymore, more than we are living in these series of sequenced moments you know, snapshots, yeah. good, yeah. bad, or indifferent. What's your thought? Well, I think, you know, I, I love the quote that you had the other day is it's moments, not monuments. And I think that's very true. When you look at modern cities, there are no monuments. When you look at old cities, there's monuments everywhere you look. Our need to have a sense of legacy is being fulfilled by the immediate moment of being able to record an Instagram picture or uh, post on Facebook. All those things give us a sense of that we're escaping our mortality, that we're making a mark on the planet somehow. I mean, look at the Black Lives Matter movement when we're blacking out uh, you know, our Instagram posts to show solidarity. Now, think about what you're doing right? You're just blacking out a picture on a digital screen and social media. But what it does is it shows solidarity and it feels like you're contributing to a greater good. Monuments in the past did the same thing, right? So these people who were leaders of society would build these monuments to themselves to create this legacy. 
in a way, we create instant legacies continuously all the time. We feel like we're contributing to things or we're helping things. Um, you, know, you know, the other, you know, while ago when Australia had those horrible wildfires, I donated money through Facebook instantly. And I felt like I was contributing to the greater good of, you know, the planet by helping put out these horrible wildfires. And I think that those it's this kind of moment aspect, this kind of feeling like you're contributing and leaving a legacy that has changed the perception of having to build a monument. I'm not sure if it's good or bad. It's just different. It's just in a way, I guess we're actually helping produce real change rather than the illusion of something like a, you know, a statue in a square. I'm not sure exactly what that does for anybody, but maybe it did in the past. Whereas today, maybe we can contribute. I mean, look at what happened with the rallies for Trump and how the social media uh, kids who are teenagers kind of undermined his, his rally just because they weren't necessarily, you know, believing in what he talks about. That's pretty significant considering, you know, that these are just teenage kids who have decided to come together uh, for whatever reason and do something about how they feel. That wasn't really possible in the past. And I think that we're, that's the kind of world we're, we're facing going forward. Also, that these are teenagers. These are not individuals that necessarily have maturity within society, yet they can affect huge change by organizing themselves. And digital media allows them to do that. If we go back to the Renaissance just for a moment and we, or frankly, mm -hmm. we look, we could choose any period of time. I think both of us just have a fascination with the invention and, and creativity that came out of that particular period. You said that, you know, da Vinci created an impression of life, but his yes. impression of the Mona Lisa took him years. Yes. Whereas today I can walk out and I can create, you know, what he might've created. I could create a hundred images for every, every year of his life in the morning. So is this now less about quantity than it is about quality or the reverse? Is it less about quality than it is about quantity? I am because of the heft of stuff I've created rather than the, the depth or the impact of the things that I'm creating. Well, I think we're in a very nascent period right now. I don't think that we can say that there isn't quality. It's just that we're beginning something. You know, I mean, da Vinci came at the end of the Renaissance. And so his skills were honed by everyone who came before him. You know, Giotto invented this idea of perspective. And if you look at Giotto paintings, they're quite primitive to our eyes in relation to what da Vinci did. So I think that we're sort of in that nascent period where we're using technology to create images. And I don't think we're anywhere near where the Renaissance, like the Da Vinci period. And I think that we'll, we'll eventually have a couple of Da Vinci's, probably more than one because of the, the ability and the speed that people have to produce, you know, images. You know, it took Da Vinci years to paint what appeared to be a living human being on, on a piece of canvas with some oil and some pigment. I mean, that's quite an astounding feat, considering that photography never existed. All through his mind and through his ability to channel his energy to make this thing. We, on the other hand, have technology that allows us to capture any moment we want just by pointing our phone and pushing a button. What that means is that the people who are creating art today are going to, you know, the, 
are setting the foundation for those that are going to come in the future. And there could very well be some Da Vinci's that, that create some, you know, astounding works of art in the future using technology that we have as their paint. You know, it's just that right now we're a little bit like the Edwardian period where everything is mashing together. I don't know, you know, if you're familiar with the Edwardian period, it's like post Victorian. It was just like everything was thrown into the pot, you know, and it was really the transition of the word, the beginning of the 20th century that this kind of crazy grafted world that was a brief period actually, but in the end it was this kind of, you know, just smashing together of all these things that everyone knew beforehand. And then all of a sudden invention happened, you know, art nouveau started taking place and then art deco and then modernism. And then the war came and then technology was thrown in. And then all of a sudden, boom, we have the modern world of the the 20th century. We're just in the beginning of the 21st century. I see some interesting parallels between the world of the Renaissance and the invention of perspective um, and where we are today. Let me put this into play here. Prior to the world of the Renaissance and Giotto and the development of perspective view, um, everything was pretty flat. I mean, and most art, by the way, was done mm-hmm. um, in the service of of religious patrons, and and that was the world of art. There was never sort of the sense of the necessarily the pastoral landscape. But even what does, they were very two dimensional. They were they didn't have that sense of perspective or three dimensions. The Renaissance changes things, and it says, no, no, now my point of view in the observance of this thing or this experience is is from a singular point in space. That point of space is me, where I see yeah. it. it. It's my singular view into the world. Um, and it's a very egocentric shift from what used to be yeah. done in art uh, that was, um, yeah. was never that way. I see the parallel, though, in a completely different medium uh, in the development of these digital devices where my worldview that I take from my phone is singularly mine. And oh, by the way, most relevant to me in my in my performance of this brand life that I lead, the brand of me. And I see those two things as being similar in, in that it's an egocentric representation of my worldview, right? Yeah. Um, which I find intriguing for how we're simply seeing the same kinds of things, but mediated through a different, completely different type of medium, one paint and brush and the other one digital zeros and ones. Yes. I I agree with you that definitely there's this kind of very insanely egocentric perspective. I mean, you know, people recording everyday mundane life, you know, posting it to thousands of friends that, you know, they can watch them brush their teeth. At the same time, there's also the collectiveness that takes place. I mean, look, again, going back to the K-pop and TikTok fans who undermined Trump's rally because they were, they said they were pulling a prank, you know. Um, That's a very highly organized collective mentality to do that, you know. So there is this weird, and I think that that's the, the thing that makes it modern there is this weird dichotomy that takes place. So there's this, you know, brand of me, but also brand of we. Yes. So, and digital digital um, platforms allow for those things to happen simultaneously, which in the past was not the case. So I think that's where we're entering kind of this world of the 21st century, where we're redefining what it means to be part of a society and how people then interrelate with each other. 
Um, it's very dangerous because obviously, you know, these platforms can be controlled by just a few people. So that's very, and it, and they are actually, when you think about all the social platforms, there are just, you know, a couple people making a lot of decisions about what's being shown about what you think is reality. You know, it's like, it's really funny because my partner and I, we, you know, he goes on social media all the time and he's always disappointed about how many likes you get. And I said, well, how do you know that's real? How do you know that's not just controlled by Facebook? you know, or by Instagram or whatever it might be. Um, you know, you don't know who's really seeing it. So it's just, you're just taking their word for it and you trust it, even though there's nothing there to indicate you should. It's interesting even that you can buy likes, right? I mean, you, you can use ads to yeah. manufacture more um, accolades from the things that you post. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, the invention, there's the illusion of reality that da, da, da Vinci created. Well, now we're talking about deep fakes, right? About manufacturing reality that's so convincing. But it, there, it's no, in, in a weird way, it's no different than the Da Vinci paintings. Because for a Renaissance individual who'd never seen a photograph in their life, when they see a Da Vinci painting, they think they're looking at reality. You know, mm -hmm. just like we are when we're looking at digital you know, images that are being produced through a computer, we also believe that it's reality, even though actually it's just a bunch of pixels on a screen. And I think it, those things have incredible power. Do we live in this bifurcated world or an either end world where I'm able to put some demarcation between those things that are real and lived as real and those things that are wholly manufactured equally have value? And equally, I like, but I'm able to parse them, or do those things blend and make experience a little more messy? I think they blend. I think that, you know, I don't know if you ever heard the philosophy, what you think you become. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, even anything we produce, if it's reinforced enough, that's what you become. So I think that the images that we produce as quote unquote artificial in a lot of ways will become reality. You know, um, I mean, there's this whole scientific method and the age of enlightenment brought about this idea that there is a right or a wrong, that there is a truth and a, f a falseness. But prior to the age of enlightenment, people believed in, you know, all kinds of superstitions, all kinds of divine beings that interfered with life. And it was a tr that was their reality. You know, the Greeks believed that everything that happened to them were the acts of the gods, you know, and, and granted, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-science by any means. I, I believe that that scientific method is what has brought us all the richness we have in our modern world. But at the same time, it's a type of religion as well, you know, that, that science has all the answers. Not always. We're, all, we're always human. We, there's things that we don't know and sometimes, and, and scientific theories change all the time, right? The more we find out, the more we discover, the more truths then come out and change. And I'm, don't get me wrong, because I am so not, you know, the idea of a malleable truth. But at the same time, our minds are very, very mercurial. And we, you know, transform with our thoughts and our reality and our societies transform with our thoughts. What we believe, again, we become. So if we're producing all of these alternative realities on screen that everyone can see and everyone can believe, then often that's exactly what happens. We believe that. 
the making of stories is critical to, I, I think, the development of our culture. I mean, I think that uh, we've come to understand our place in the world through the making of stories. Absolutely. And, and, and the participation in rituals that reinforce those stories. Uh, Absolutely. For, for much longer in our human development, we had nothing but dance around a fire, some guttural utterances, and maybe mm-hmm. the beating on an empty, you know, hollowed out log to tell people the meaning of themselves within the context of this totally chaotic world that they are living in, right? David, if you think about what we're doing at the moment, okay, we're just animals making weird sounds. The sounds that we're making are communication of ideas. And by stringing those ideas together, we're telling each other a story. Right. So our act of even having language is a manufactured affectation. You know, we're communicating abstract ideas through squeaks and grunts that represent ideas. And by stringing them together, we're then creating these complex narratives that then create telephones, you know, drinking glasses, chairs. Except that in your world and my world, um, we use physical things and places to tell those stories. Mostly. Yes. I mean, we, sure, sure. There's yeah. there are graphics and things like that on the wall. And, and we see sometimes written language to tell those stories. Maybe there's sound that tells those stories. We, we are, as architects and designers of places and things, we use those environmental experiences to tell the narrative of a story. Um, yeah. how, how do brands do that? What are the key, the core components of, of stories in, as lived in experiences? Well, I think now stories are taking place. Uh, every place is a location, even virtual. Even if you're telling a story from someone's perspective, the place is still their mind, right? So there's always a place. We can't escape our physicality. Even if it's virtual, it's still a place. So it's context of place plays a very critical role in how any narrative unfolds because even if it comes from the inner voice of an individual it's still coming from the inner voice of the individual you know so i think when brands tell stories they need to talk now especially today between the virtual and and the physical there has to be a fluidity between those aspects because that's where consumers are playing now you know they're they might be sitting having lunch with a friend texting on WhatsApp to their other friend that's in Tokyo and maybe then looking on Instagram to their other friend that's in LA. And, you know, those locations have a relevance in terms of cultural context, but they don't have a relevance in terms of the physical location. So the location then becomes an idea versus a space. And I think that brands have to look at the world from that perspective that their brand is an idea. And so how does that idea get communicated through a narrative? And what's the most appropriate space for telling that story, whatever it might be? And that space doesn't necessarily always have to be the same. It can change depending on the story and what's the most appropriate for telling that narrative. You said anything created is a story. An intent is a story. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean... You know, if I'm designing a glass, I'm making up a story about what that product is going to be used for. And therefore, I'm designing for that imaginary action. It's like 
when you design something, you're designing from an abstract perspective because you're always designing towards an intent versus actually designing when the intent's taking place. Do, do you see what I mean? Yes. In your view, everything is imbued with story. Everything's imbued with story. Every single thing that we touch has some kind of narrative, even scientific breakthrough, rational. The rational is how we arrive at the solution, but the narrative is why we create it. So whether it's solving cancer or building a jet plane or designing a beautiful gown for an event, the basis of creation is the same. Because those stories give us context and they give us meaning for the why behind what we're doing. Uh, which yeah. makes sense. Well, like, you know, like, for example, I read tarots, right? And and everyone, oh, it's so mystical. It's so hocus pocus, you know, blah, blah, blah. Whatever you want to think about tarot is fine. But I, what a tarot is and what it, what it was originally was a game. And the game was basically the journey of a human's life from birth to death. And what the deck did was there's the mundane experience of humanity. So the part that is the kind of earthly experience. And then the deck has what they call the higher arcana, which is the divine experience. And thus we're, that's the realm of the gods. So the higher arcana and the lower arcana together, when you lay out tarot cards, basically it's like a hieroglyphic language that tells a story. So you can use it for fortune telling, but the only reason you have fortune telling is because you're reading the story into the, the connecting images, just like you would a hieroglyph. It's a type of visual language. So everything in life is a story. Your life is a story. Your life is a narrative. You can say, you know, David yeah. born here, David ends here, and everything in between. That's the only way to communicate your existence, right? And it's not just the chronology of of events than it is the contextual relationships between those events, the circumstances that one triggers in another one that I think makes the evolution of story so interesting. And I think this, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about this idea about how the story and the plot line changes through our interaction with the narrative, which I find really, really interesting from the point of view of creating brand experiences like the ones you were describing where you're watching the show unfold. And I yeah. am influencing the direction that it goes. I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan, you know, Hero of a Thousand Faces. Yeah. Um, the idea yeah. that, that he he says that uh, in the context of stories, there are no new stories. It's all the same replaying of the same narrative, right? Just yes. remanufactured and reshaped. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think he's right. It's context. So the story yeah. is the same because the, because humans' existence is exactly the same. You're born, you die. You know. There, that never has changed. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the context of that of that simple narrative is what changes. So all of our myths, all of our stories revolve around that very simple narrative. Born, die. Mm -hmm. With some challenges in between. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like you were saying about context. So I think it goes back to what you just said. So the context of that existence, those two points, beginning and yeah. end, and some people think that it doesn't end at death. It goes on to something else, but we don't know. In our physical world, all we know is that you're born and you die. And everything that happens in between is simply contextual. What do you think are the qualities that brands should be attending to in the making of these stories that engage guests in a, in a relevant way? The consumer now makes stories as quickly and as powerfully as brands used to make stories. 
So now the, the threshold to engage those people is much higher because they themselves are story makers. So a brand just telling you, oh, just do it. Like, well, they're like, I don't care. I'm not going to just do it. You do it. You know, I'm going to do it this way and you should follow me. You know what I mean? Like, it's a very different perspective because they are also powerful story makers. And so the people that they follow and the brands that they follow will be the ones that they admire and respect and feel like bring a benefit and enrich their lives in some way or relate to them in a very relevant way that maybe, you know, other brands wouldn't be able to, whatever that might be. So I think that brands today have to be incredibly sensitive to the desires of consumers. And I think they need to definitely be purpose-driven. They cannot just simply exist in this kind of vapid world of marketing with these, you know, silly catchphrases. They need to authentically walk the talk. Um, And I think that that's a very important component of, of being successful in the future. What do you think about the idea that brands will have to increasingly co-opt or collaborate in the making of those stories rather than simply pumping it out from a corporate headquarters somewhere? Absolutely. Because the way a brand is viewed today, a brand is viewed just like your friend is viewed. So, you know, if you're, if you have a bunch of people who are generating their own, the brand of me, then their differentiation from a a manufactured commercial brand doesn't exist. They expect the Mm -hmm. brand that they buy to behave like the brand of me, their friends with integrity, with a point of view, with a purpose, with a belief system. So companies are, are more like personalities. Personalities who we align with for any number of reasons, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you, you suggested that brands need fans. Yeah, they do. Not consumers. So um, what's the difference? The difference is a consumer buys because they feel they need or because the brand has told them that in order for them to be complete, they have to buy. Now, what they need to do is, again, this goes back to purpose-driven brands, right? So brands do things that, that consumers then respect and admire, and therefore they buy into that value system. So they're a fan of that brand because the brand reflects the values they, that the consumer has within their own set of you know, their own life. Going back to our earlier conversation about moving from monuments to moments, it used to be that brands were monuments, monumental yes. brands, right? Correct. Ubiquitous across the globe. Yeah. Does that begin to diminish in relevancy? To, yeah, to absolutely. A new guest? Yeah. Well, I think I think um, you know when when someone wants to buy something, they're going to look at what the brand stands for because i think a a monument is this artifice right it's this like gilded statue that stands in the square (laughs) you know versus something that actually relates back to the individual's life and brings benefit so the value system and the purpose-driven kind of marketing is incredibly important um you know the brands that you know, during COVID manufactured hand sanitizer and masks and donated it to, you know, those are the brands that people resonate with, or at least a certain group of consumers will resonate with and therefore want to buy into, you know, or Black Lives Matter, who are the brands that stood up, who are the brands that are contributing to equality, you know, and walk the talk, don't just say it. And the other thing I think that today is really different is that people will find out when it's inauthentic and then the backlash is even more severe. 
because no one likes to be lied to. What's next on your agenda of things to take over the world and the brand of George or the brand of Oxus <laughs> or the or future brand? Well, I, I hope that we can continue to lead the way in the consumer experience. I think that's something that I'm trying to really push for in the next you know couple of years is really look at how we can become uh, much more relevant in terms of, because I mean, our company has been around nearly 20 years and 20 years ago, what we designed was primarily an architectural space. And now what we design are moments, just like you were talking. So in a weird way, what we've done is we've migrated from monuments to moments, right? And so the, the, the moments now are the key drivers in anything we do. It's the psychology and the engagement of individuals versus the architecture. The architecture is a byproduct. So what's next for, for Uxus and myself is really looking at that etherealness of experience and how it can be tapped into to either help sell products, but more importantly, sell values. I think that what we want to do is work obviously with brands and clients who are aligned to the values that we have as a company and help you know, magnify hopefully what is considered a positive value. I do want to ask you one more question, okay? because I think we shared a similar type of experience, though completely different context. And mine was, I went to uh, Charles Rennie Macintosh exhibit at MoMA years ago. Okay. Might've been even 20 years ago. And uh, I walked into a recreation of a Charles Rennie Macintosh tea room and it set me to tears. Wow. You have said that you stood in front of the painting of St. John the Baptist and it yes. set you to tears. The Da Vinci one, yes. The Da Vinci, right. Yeah. Um, what is it about those experiences that can so profoundly affect us to move us to that, that extent? Well, my opinion is that it's the divine that's coming through because, you know, work that is so complete and so perfect emotes a kind of energy that transcends time. And I think that that kind of immortality that these individuals produce through their own energy, because I mean, in the end, it's all energy. In the end, we're, you know, like the cliche of that we're all stardust. Yeah, that's kind of all we are. I mean, if you think about the sun, the sun generates life and plants animals eat the plants we eat the animals without the light without the sun we're basically taking the energy that is coming from the universe and that gets transformed into physical matter and we then take that energy and we create vision from it in the in in the case of the da vinci painting a painting that seemed to have life instilled into it in the case of the macintosh room probably a perfection of design that is rarely seen and that kind of completeness is very rare. That kind of completeness and that kind of perfection with perfection with intent is very rare, you know, and you get it. You get the great visionaries, you know, like 2001 A Space Odyssey is a masterpiece like a Da Vinci painting, except it's done with film. Sometimes we take things for granted. Sometimes we need to appreciate this, these moments of brilliance that human beings produce that help propel things forward. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it can really transform the world. And I think, you know, great artists, great writers, um, you know, 
again, <laughs> wars are fought because of ideas. You know, destruction comes equally from an idea as much as creation does. So when you have a coalescence of ideas that then manifest themselves into this perfection, I find it emotionally overwhelming. You know, when you see that kind of beauty, when you see that kind of ability to, in this case, in the case of the Da Vinci painting, you know, instill life onto a piece of fabric because you can just manipulate some oil and some pigments and create the illusion of a soul. That's pretty freaking amazing. George Godel, thank you. Um, as usual, we covered a lot of ground from the Renaissance to social media <laughs> platforms. Um, art. I was thinking, my God, David can go there. Jesus. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm just worried about what I'm going to have for dinner, let alone like the kind of conversations we're having. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.